Let's go to the throne of grace just one more moment. Father, would you, in your mercy, help us, part of that company of all mortal flesh, to keep silence. In this hour, as we hear the word, to receive it, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Thank you so much for John's gospel. Thank you for preserving for us the writings of the apostles, the gospels, their letters. As we would pray every week, show us Christ, help us to be reminded to embrace that we have life in his name and that there's life and salvation in no other name. We pray for grace now in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, sometimes introductions are awkward You can't remember a name. Your mind goes totally blank. Maybe you're, or it's like you're reciting the memory verses of the month and your Bible covers the last line, who is sufficient for these things, and you keep going. You know how it is. And you, you maybe get someone's name wrong. You've, I, I'm, I seem to have... My spiritual gift is to get people's names wrong at time. I finally recognize that. And when I learn it, I like, I reinforce it deeply. I'm so proud that only to realize that I've been, I've got, I've had it wrong for like two months. Okay. And then you're so scared too. either your mind goes totally blank or you know you've struggled with someone's name and you're scared you're going to completely whiff on their name. All right, and then you're not sure. Do I uh, do I uh, introduce this short person to this tall person, this new person to this old person, this person to that person, that person to this person, the newer to the older? It's also very confusing. Maybe some of you can set me straight on it. All right. And your goal, of course, is to hope that every person will feel comfortable and be interested, really, in meeting the other person. Smiles shakes, hugs, whatever. And in in John 1, John makes an introduction, but there's no embarrassment to it. And it's the purpose, the very purpose of the first 18 verses of his gospel. And that old gray grizzled apostle of love, he introduces the word. I mean, it's as plain as the nose on your face, the logos, the word. The one coming, right? And he, and he translates this in the present tense. You'll see the true light coming. He'll use that expression in verse 9, into the world. The one coming as light and life, or life and light. And it's not awkward at all. It's completely awesome, The sun without beginning or end, 
forever with God the Father, John says, is the Logos, the one both revealed and the one revealing God to us. And for John, there is no embarrassment by his introduction. But more importantly, neither is there with God. And you see, it brings us to our main idea this morning in our Advent series. And I want to give it, in effect, as a chiasm. I've constructed our big idea like the word auto is spelled the same from front to back. There's a technical name for that. I can't remember it in the moment. But hear this big idea and see if you see the symmetry to help you remember it. The God of love sent him, that is the word, into the world that the world in him might know the love of God. The God of love sent him, that is the word, into the world that the world in him or by him might know the love of God. If you're familiar with 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, it's John who writes those three very powerful words that can never leave you stuck in neutral, especially when someone says it like to you, and you know they mean it, I love you. And God says, God is love. 1 John 4, 18. There's a lot that we may say God is, but John says without any equivocation, God is love. And we ought never to deny that, be embarrassed by that, or feel like we have to cobble that with all types of other qualifications about all the other things God is. Men, if you tell your wife, you're beautiful, you don't need to add anything. Sometimes that's sufficient. And John says, God is love. And under the cover of darkness, just two pages away, in John 3, Jesus told curious Nicodemus that God so loved the world. He loved mankind with such affection he loved a rebellious mass of humanity in such a way, in such a manner. That's the word so, that he sent his only son, maybe better, his one and only son into the world. Yes, in answer to the question, can God do all his holy will? He always does his holy will. In, with respect to his glory, yes, God always acts in a way that promotes his glory. But it was love, John tells us. It was love that moved God's heart to send his son, the very son of his love, on a rescue mission that was birthed in the eternal covenant of redemption. The father purposed, the father planned and elected a people for himself as the object of his lavish, his immeasurable, his endless love. The Son is the second person of the Trinity in subordination and joyful cooperation with the Father offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to redeem those whom the Father had elected in love 
before time began. And what about the Spirit? The Spirit subordinate to the Father and the Son is the great applier of the redemption planned by the Father, purchased by the Son. He convicts. He woos. He quickens. He brings to life. And he brings the life of God to the elect of the Father, the beloved of the Son, so that they might know the love of God in the Son. It is no mistake. It is not surprising then that the Son in his final prayer in John 17 says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So how does John's prologue his 18 verse, without apology, introduction to his gospel and God's gospel. How does it develop this big idea? I want us to see in our sermon outline how that's true. How the God of love sent his son into the world that the world might know him. First, we'll see in verses one through five, the son is the eternal word. By the way, this outline is not complicated. I'm a simple person. The outline reflects that simplicity. Second, the son was born witness to by John. Verses five through eight. The son is the eternal word or logos. Verses one through four. Second, the son was born witness to by John. In this case, of course, we'll see that's not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist. Third, in verses 9 through 13, the Son is the only true object of saving faith. And then finally, the Son is the eternal Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's verses 14 through 18. So first, the Son is the eternal word. What do the first few words of John's gospel make you think? Kids, when you hear the words in the beginning, what book does that make you think of? Pretty simple. Yeah, Genesis, right? The very first few words of Genesis, they are in parallel in the beginning. This was John's purpose. He was seeking to give us a theological foundation or starting place for the gospel. If you think about this, this will make sense. Watch as I develop this in the next few minutes. Sometimes a starting point is like a point in time. I'll never forget December 15th, 1987. That's the day our firstborn child came into the world. I'll never forget that moment, that point in time beginning. But John tells us that the word, that is Jesus, as the one who is the word of the Lord, that phrase, Debar Adonai, occurs about 250 times in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, Jesus is that New Testament expression. He is that word. He is the word of God revealed. But he says the word was there in the beginning. And don't think point in time. Think of an unending line like around the circumference of the earth. 
don't know if you ever thought about that. If you could put a string around 24,000 miles around the circumference of the earth, it would sort of be futile to speak of the beginning of that line. You could say it's aligned without beginning or end. There's no beginning and no ending to the sun. Like that line that's continuous, is unending. That's the point, that's the reference when we read the words, in the beginning was the word. And it's that reality about the Son of God that must frame and shape and color all that we think and desire and will before the face of God. And I want to give you a challenge in the next seven days to take these first four, five verses of John 1 at night before you go to bed. You could also do it first thing in the morning. But I want you to think, I challenge you to think about the eternality of the word to frame your importance relative to it. Kids, let me tell you something about you if you've never thought about this. You are tuned in to a station and you need no instruction to be tuned into this. You naturally think what's in it for me. That's your orientation. And until you are born again by the Spirit of God, your first inclination is to think it's all about me and to ask what's in it for me. And so the point of thinking about the Word and the eternality of the Word that in the beginning was the Word is to shape and bring to proper size your importance. But there's more. John says he was with God, and the Word was with God. Is there one God in three persons? Yes. But John tells us that beyond the eternality of the Word is the unity of the Word with the Father. He was with God. So think of the long line, this string all around the globe, with no beginning or end. Now think, if you will, of two strings or two sticks, and they're in parallel with one another. There's a way to think of this spatially that's helpful. So there's the eternality of the word, but there's also the unity of the word with the Father. But there is still one more step in John's initial stair-like description of the word. Not only was the word there in the beginning, that's eternality. Not only was the word with God, but he says something shocking. He says the word was God. And there's no way to twist this grammatically. It can't be misunderstood. It speaks to the equality of the word. He's not simply equal to God he is God fully. He is God in fact. And thus, it's not surprising that John tells us what Paul also writes in Colossians 1, that all things were made through him. So you could search and inquire over every particle of the created realm and never find an item where these words were not stamped on the bottom of it. Agent of production, the word 
co-eternal with God, God himself. There's a number of years ago, we were a young family growing up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and you do what people in hot South Florida do for vacation. You go to Western North Carolina, and we rented a cabin, and I'll never forget it. Everything in that cabin, every chair, every table, it seemed like every pot, every pan, every lamp had on the bottom of it these words, property of C.R. Miller. Okay, maybe some of you have been to a place like that. Maybe you're oriented like that. Your books say property of so-and-so. And the word has placed these words on all the created realm, property of the Son of God. You get it? Every bit, every particle, every square inch. And because he made life, it's also not surprising that John says that in the word was life. Some of you college students, you may feel like biology has kicked you pretty hard. You know, memorizing all these things that go with the hard sciences. But never forget in all your study of life, never forget the giver of life. D.A. Carson makes the point that all the themes in John 1 Verses 1 through 18 in this prologue, they're all noted, they're all developed throughout the rest of John's gospel. Life, light, truth, grace, all these words we find introduced and repeated in John's prologue, they're found in the rest of his book. And he simply introduces these themes here. You know John 14, 6, one of the seven sayings of Jesus. He says, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. What did the fall so tragically introduce into creation? What entered the garden on the day of Adam and Eve's rebellion? Death. But what does the word so wonderfully introduce into our world and into his world? What enters our world through the word? What does he bring? He brings life and light in contrast to death and darkness. You know, this deep, pervading darkness that sin has shrouded and it's enveloped the world by the light of God or so that the light of God is obscured. Some of you know this. Maybe even this week, there's a darkness of soul that your own sin or just the reality that we live in a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world. And that looks like, that looks like illness and, and, and death and besetting sin and, 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 and the shattering of shalom by others who in a moment will, to get what they want in a moment, they make everybody else pay. But here's the good news. When, when John says, the light shines, verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus overcame it. Jesus is overcoming it. Jesus will overcome it even if the darkness will never comprehend the light. In the end, God wins. And the sun wins. There is no doubt that he will trample underfoot 
and mock death and sin and hell and the grave. And we must preach this to ourselves, that the light has come and is coming and will overcome the darkness. Second, we see in verses 6 through 8 that the son was born witness to by John. If you know the Gospels, you know that this man, you know this man named John. We call him John the Baptist. He died in a most um, unhappy way as his head, he was executed, his head was cut off and presented on a platter. But not before God used him for the purpose that he sent him. We read a very simple sentence. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That sounds like, you know, there's a knock at the door. There's a guy here to fix the dishwasher. I mean, it's just so plain the way John states it. But it's so very full. Like the word... John was also sent with this specific commission from God. He was the first martyr, right? Because the Greek word martyr is most often translated witness. That's the word there when you see witness. He came as a witness. That's the noun. To bear witness, right? And so John doesn't want us to miss this about the other John, about John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but sometimes you know how Someone is telling you the same thing repeatedly as though you didn't understand the first time they told you. And does that ever get under your skin? Does anyone feel that way? Okay, yeah, all right, okay. It's like, hey, you're insulting my intelligence. But John, probably not trying to placate our feelings, is making the point in the span of three verses that this guy, John the Baptist, was a witness And it's as though John was coming with the shirt. It's not about me on the front. And on the back it said, it's all about him. He was like the Spirit, always an evidence of the work of the Spirit of God, is the focus, the spotlight is on the Son of God. That's how you know the Spirit's at work. Because Jesus is glorified, Jesus is magnified. And that was John's role. He's like that guy. And three times we see this word witness, right? It's unmistakable. He came as a witness, occurrence one, verse seven. And then these next two occurrences, verse seven, to bear witness, and then to bear witness, verse eight, could be translated this way, that he might bear witness. It's the mood in the Greek. That he might, for this purpose, about the light. So John then is carrying on with this theme of light. Notice how prominent this is. John the Apostle writing of John the Baptist bearing witness about the light. That light, verse 4, was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, verse 5. That light is not overcome by the darkness, John, verse 6, comes to bear witness about that light. Verse 8, in case we didn't get the message, John the Baptist, the witness, is not the light, but he's saying that's the light, that light, that true light, which we'll read about in a few minutes, was coming 
into the world. And John says in his introduction that John the Baptist, the witness, was sent from God that all might believe through him. And we're not clear when he says through him, does he mean through John the Baptist's witness or through Jesus Christ? I'm fine, I, I would never argue about that. I'm fine to say through John's witness, the witness of John the Baptist. But John, the gospel writer, he wants you and I to understand the role of the witness, but also the identity and the role of the one to whom John is bearing witness. And right there in verse 7, there's embedded, there's the key, you might say it's the hinge, sort of, of this passage. And that is that all might believe through him. That's the purpose for which John was sent as a martyr, as a witness, that all might believe through his witness. And there was one purpose for God sending John then as an advanced witness bearer for the world. And it's the same main purpose that John, for which John wrote his gospel. For some reason, John holds that out on us and doesn't give it to us until the end of chapter 20. We read this in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So moms and dads, with your kids today at lunch, here's a question. Why did John write his book? And the answer is that we might believe in the name of the Son of God or that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, rather than being dead, rather than being darkness, we might be alive and we might be in light as we are enfolded in the love of God in Christ Jesus, the Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, and the Word who John says is God. There's a third thing I want us to see it in verses 9 through 13, and that is the Son is the only true object of saving faith. John, he's expanding here. He's pulling us along and saying, I want to make this introduction a little longer. This isn't like John meet Mary, Mary meet John. As he unfolds the word to us, he's expanding on just how the word was the light that was coming into the world, entering the darkness of the cosmos. And when John here is using cosmos, that's translated world, it's encompassing of all mankind. And the life that was the light of men who entered the darkness of the very world created by him that bore all the marks of his, of his particular agency that the world was made through him. It was his life that was the light of men. And I want to apply this for a moment. If you are not in Christ. It does not matter how, I, how high your IQ is, how privileged 
your upbringing is, the honors that you receive in your educational pursuits, the balance of your checking account, the applaud that people give you until you are enabled to see with new eyes and a new heart, with new desires and affection, the Son of God for all he is as in the beginning as the word and there with God and there as God, you will always remain in darkness. And your prayer then is God, through your word, by your spirit, give me a new heart and take away the scales of my eyes that I might see you in a saving way. You see, speaking of the world being made through him, this world reflects the wisdom, the goodness, the order, the foresight, and the glory of the Son, creating in holy cooperation with and for the triune God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And Paul had that in mind at the end of Romans 11 when he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It encompasses that. It contemplates that. But don't miss this. It was the Word who came as the true light. Have you ever asked, what does John mean by true? You know that true may mean the opposite of what is false, what's not true. If I said Greenville's the capital of the state of South Carolina, you'd say that's false, it's not true, it's Columbia. If I say the speed of gravity is 15 feet per second per second, some of you science types would say not so fast, or you'd say no, it's faster, something like that, okay? And you'd correct me to say that's not true, that's false, because the speed of gravity is 32.2 feet per second. But this is not John's intention when he speaks of the word as the true light. The freight of his idea is this. It's like something like when one of our pastors who loves to golf, when he hits the ball well and straight without like hooking it without slicing it off the tee, he says he hit it what? True. It's this. This is the freight of the idea. The sun is the genuine, real, authentic light. Not pretending. He's the light in complete contrast to darkness that has come has come and is coming into the world to penetrate, to invade, and to overcome all the darkness that our sin and our rebellion has perpetrated in it. And we got to stop right now and we apply this to say that the gospel that we preach to ourselves today and every day after today, the tomorrow beyond tomorrow, is that However great my sin is, his grace is greater. The Son of God, who is that true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world, he and his grace is greater than my sin. And so tomorrow I wake up with hope. 
and you may. And for some of you, if your walk is looking like this, you're hot today and cold tomorrow, part of that growing maturity is to be telling yourself God's truth, reinforcing it, repeating it. There's a sense of rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. That's what maturity looks like. It looks like soaking in those old truths, walking in those old paths. Was the son not there? Was he not there as the agent of creation when God said, let there be light and there was light? He surely was. He was there in Genesis 1-3. And he surely broke into this world his own as true light. When Jesus, in speaking of the church as his, when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, it's the idea of the gates of hell will not withstand the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that the Son brings. And it's true here about light. The light will pervade and invade and overwhelm the darkness. But in verses 9 through 13, there's a, really, there's a shocking reality. The world that was made through him was unknown to it. The world did not know him, verse 10. The world to which he was the agent in speaking into creation and his own, whether it's the world that he made or his own Jewish people, here it was. There was no hospitality, there was no reception, there was no belief. I want you to imagine for a moment, let me illustrate this this way. Tonight, 6.30, we're ready, first song from Handel's Messiah. And miraculously, Handel is brought back to life and walks through those back doors. And without a doubt, he presents his ID. What's his full name? George Frederick Handel. We ascertain, as a matter of fact, Come back from the dead is George Frederick Handel. And we're about to sing, what, nine or ten pieces from his Messiah. Can you imagine that we would sing Handel's Messiah and not acknowledge the very presence of George Frederick Handel among us? It's preposterous. We couldn't imagine. But that's what's happened here. There was no reception, no belief. He came to his own. And John says, and his own people did not receive him. But John tells us of a contrast in verse 12. And this is a word for you. This is a word for every person who hears the gospel. And the but here is, is, very, is a word of contrast. But to all who did receive him, he says, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, but of God. I want us to think for a moment about birth. What's the point of that expression? You receive, you believe. And that accords with John 20, verses 30 and 31, that John says, excuse me, the very purpose he wrote his gospel, 
the whole design of all that's included in those 21 chapters is that we might believe that the Christ is the Son of God and having believed we would have life in his name. But think about verse 13 when he says we were given this right to become children of God. It's our manifest right. We can claim it. But he says something unique here about birth. He says, and he equates the experience of salvation to birth. Of course, in John 3, we'll read that about the new birth. Unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here's the point. No one ever gave birth to themselves. Could you think about that? Could you imagine you're in your mother's womb and it's like in your Google calendar. Today, I'm making my first appearance. Okay, I'm gonna plan. It's all planned, all right? This is it. This is the day I have chosen for my birthday, all right? No, no one ever gave birth to themselves. In the metaphor of birth for salvation, it points to this truth. It points to the truth in Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of the Lord. (laughs) There's nothing more to add. That's it. It's all of him. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Well, we come finally to verses 14 through 18 to just conclude our exposition. And I love how even that last song that Wesley selected for us is it speaks of let all mortal flesh keep silent. That this final point is that the Son is the eternal Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We are mortal flesh, but the Son is the Word who became flesh. And John says, He dwelt among us, He tabernacled. And the word there is it's, it's the idea of skin. It's related to the skin that would have covered from animal skins, the tents that we would have found in the Old Testament narratives. The tabernacle, it's that idea. He literally, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He became what he never was without relinquishing what he always was. There's a reason we say we take exception to those words in the hymn He emptied himself of what? All but love. Yeah. He became what he never was without ceasing to be what he always had been. The son took on a human body and a human soul in becoming flesh, thus the incarnation. And by flesh we mean more than that you could touch Jesus and feel flesh. Like right now, I can feel the flesh, right? I'm touching the top of my left hand. It's more than that, like when you do the same. And by flesh, we, we don't mean that Jesus took on or had a sinful nature like you and me, like mortify the flesh, that the significance of that or that meaning of the word flesh starts. In fact, in Hebrews 4.15, we learn that Though Jesus experienced every category of human temptation to sin, he was completely without sin and he never gave into it. He never melted under the heat of temptation. 
But by flesh, this is what we mean. We do mean he took on our nature so that two natures were joined in one person. This is why we may call Jesus the God-man, very God and very man. And John says, if you'll fix your eyes there on verse 14, he says that, that the words dwelling among us, like pitching his tent right in the middle of the camp of humanity, could not be missed. He says, we have seen his glory. And he doesn't leave it there. It's like, this is not the same as saying, well, the day, it was so beautiful, it was a glorious day. Some, some of you may use that expression. And there are sometimes, right, the weather's so good that it's legit to borrow and say, that, wow, the weather's glorious. But John is saying that the glory that is visible as the sun is the glory that rightly belongs to the one who is the only son from the Father, and he is ever full, overflowing with grace and truth. I was once, Pastor Jamie knows this, I was once in a situation where I was having a hard time as the pastor of Beijing Baptist Church, and I was feeling like I was meeting a little bit of resistance and there were, it was from a group that rightly appreciated this expression that the, the sun was full of grace and truth. And um, I said, it seems like they've got the whole thing full of grace and truth, but without the grace part. He is the truth. But never, ever forget that the sun, whose glory is manifest, who is the only son of the Father, is full of grace and truth. It's why D.A. Carson is, I quoted him last week in his 221-word synopsis of the gospel says that the main interest of the Son of God was that the world might be saved through him in that he principally came not to judge but to save. He pulled that from John chapter 3. He said, verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is this word. It is this word whose glory is manifest. It is this word, the one of whom John writes in John, 1 John in his first letter, in that prologue, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. That is, it's clear. It's been revealed. We've seen it. We testify to it. We, like John the Baptist, John is saying, we too are witnesses. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, 
Jesus Christ, the Word. Do you remember our big idea? And each of these points support that. The Son is the eternal Word. The Son was born witness to by John as the true light. The Son is the only true object of saving faith. And the Son is the eternal Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the big idea. This is the main theme. And I want to give it to you again that we, we might close with you giving, telling yourself this. The God of love, that is 1 John 4, 8, sent him the word into the world. The one, the, the word of eternality, the one who was in the beginning, the Word, who is a God of unity, the One who was with God, and the Word of equality, the Word who was God. The continuous line illustrates this around the globe. Maybe the two parallel lines that the Word was with God. And then the lines like stacked on one another so you can't even conceive for a moment that there are two as it only appears to be one. It's this son, the word is the only true object of saving faith. One of our applications is that we cannot birth, give birth to ourselves. We can't decide. I understand the language of today I decided to become a Christian. You say, oh Lord Jesus, help me believe all the promises of the gospel. Help me receive you. Help me say that in Christ alone, my hope is found. Here's our big idea. The love, the God of love sent him the word into the world that the world in him might know the love of God. Remember John, in John 17, the prayer of our Lord Jesus and part of what we call the high priestly prayer when he said and he prayed this, and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God has sent him. My question is this, have you received him?